Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. On Radio Survivor, we love radio history. And these days, we have 100 years of radio history to explore. This week, our topic is border radio in North America. The story of radio crossing international boundaries is as old as radio itself. Our guest is border radio expert Dr. Kevin Curran of Arizona State University. My name is Eric Klein. With me is Jennifer Waits and Paul Reesmendel. A number of weeks ago on episode number 202, uh, Jennifer was sharing some college radio tours that she had in the city of San Diego, California. And Jennifer, you noted that there are no FM college stations there. And one explanation you noted was that you had heard it's because of the city's proximity to the Mexican border. And, and so in Mexico, there is no reserved band. Here in the United States, we have a reserved band from 88 to 92 megahertz. It's all non-commercial. And so that's where a lot of public radio stations and college radio stations and community radio stations reside. But on the other side of the border, they don't have to respect that. And, and we have to work it all out. And this is weird because San Diego is a, is a, is a large city and it has a lot of colleges. Why isn't there yeah, FM radio, college radio? These like longstanding uh, stations that have operated on the internet or as air AM carrier current, illegal low-powered stations unlicensed on campus. And so we threw that out there and we were real lucky that somebody heard us talk about it. <laughs> and that person is our next guest that is Kevin Curran, who teaches at Arizona State University, things like mass comm and communications. And Kevin, you wrote a dissertation all about border radio. Isn't that right? That's correct. Uh, it was the conclusion of my Ph.D. studies at the University of Oklahoma's Gaylord College of Journalism and Mass Communication. So, Kevin, welcome to Radio Survivor. We're so pleased you got a hold of us and dropped us a line. Yeah. And we're really pleased to talk Bo to you about this phenomenon. Border radio has been something that I don't think we thought about, you know, uh, during episode one of Radio Survivor. It was not on the list of uh, our top 50 topics. But as we've gone through up to episode 200 and something or other, border radio has popped up as a theme uh, a dozen times. There's been and it's like it always sparks the imagination for us because it's. Um, because because radio doesn't recognize doesn't obey borders. borders. Yeah, exactly. and yeah, and there's so many places where you have countries bordering each other and with different radio regulations. And interesting things have ensued when you have radio going across the border. Kevin, why why did you choose to study this phenomenon, this phenomena of of radio stations at our national borders? It goes back to my childhood. My father is a dual U.S. Canadian citizen. And we were on Long Island, and every night as the sun set, he would punch the buttons on the car radio between 7.40 and 9.40 to see whether the better signal coming down from the CBC was from Toronto or Montreal. And I was totally convinced that Canadian radio was just a bunch of boring talking heads because it was shows like the world at six and as it happens, which I did not have an appreciation for as a child that I do now. Uh, then one day uh, walking back home from a junior high chess club meeting, I borrowed my friend's radio, thought I had turned on WABC and realized I was slightly up the dial, but still getting this really great radio station called CKLW out of uh, Windsor, Ontario, across the river from Detroit and I had an epiphany that there could actually be cool radio in Canada. 
So fast forward several years, you know, as you said, people have been talking about border radio. I was uh, doing some other research uh, based on some radio studies that are being done in Europe. And it occurred to me that knowing my youthful experience, plus knowing the San Diego and El Paso markets, that there is a fair amount of cross-border targeted radio in North America, and its history goes back to the 30s, and every era is full not only of interesting stations and interesting formats, but really interesting people. So let's go to San Diego. You just mentioned it as kind of where we started uh, this conversation. Um, why, why do you know so much about the San Diego border area? The interesting thing about a city like San Diego or El Paso is that they have not been part of the United States for as long as, say, Philadelphia or New York. They were originally part of Mexico. So the natives there tend to be border agnostic. The uh, head of the uh, El Paso Chamber of Commerce once said that you need to remember the fact that El Paso and Juarez are in separate countries is only a recent development in the 400-year history of the area. And you have a situation in San Diego where you have two major cities butting up against each other. Each of them needs the opportunity to be on the radio, you know, have a number, sufficient number of radio stations. But obviously, more money is available on the American side. So if you go way back to the early days of San Diego and Tijuana, you had radio stations that were built in Tijuana in the 1930s to promote the casinos and racetracks and drinking hmm. that you could do in Tijuana that you couldn't do in the United States because it was under the terms of prohibition. Aha. So you're basically you you enticing folks come down to Tijuana where you can get liquor that you can't have. Obviously, speakeasy radio at that time as well. Gambling was largely illegal in the United States. Uh, what it sounds like there is that a lot of the radio developing in the 1930s at the at the border between uh, Tijuana and and San Diego was about commerce. Right, you had the commerce down there, but further east, over along the Rio Grande, you had two other things going on. You had radio stations in El in Juarez across the river from El Paso that wanted to reach Mexican migrants who had gone into the United States fleeing the Mexican Revolution. So they got permission from uh, Mexico City to broadcast certain commercials in English and sell time to American advertisers seeking to reach those transnational migrants from Mexico in Texas. Further east down the Rio Grande, you had the so-called border blasters, which were stations put on the air, uh, the most famous of them among three people who had great medical cures for conditions and used these very high-powered radio stations to promote those cures into the United States. And snake oil radio, and and the Mexican authorities were were tolerant of this at the very least. It sounds like right. In the 1920s, as AM radio developed, FM was still 20 years away. As AM radio developed, 
the Americans and the Canadians sat down and split up the dial. They did not consult the Mexicans. The Mexicans were not happy about this. And one way that the Mexicans could get back at the Americans for ignoring them is to allow Americans to put these high-powered radio stations on the border and send their signals back into the United States. Mm. Sneaky. And are we, uh, this is like a question for everybody, like are, are radio stations in America being uh, um, like artificially shrunk to keep them respectfully small? And is it possible technologically to put radio stations on the air that are much larger than... You mean in terms of power, yeah. in terms of Yeah, are the reach? border blasters on the border of Mexico even bigger than the big stations in, uh, you know, in Texas or California? Yes, they are. The uh, United States and Canada agreed to a maximum power output of 50,000 watts for AM stations in their countries, although for a short time, WLW in Cincinnati experimented with 500,000 watts. Uh, the Mexicans have never agreed to a 50,000-watt limit. So at one point, one of John Brinkley's stations was running at that 500,000-watt maximum power. And who was John Brinkley? Yeah. John Brinkley was a charlatan, in the words of a federal court. Um, he had gotten a medical degree from a school in Arkansas that he studied for for six months. He was up in Kansas. He developed a treatment for male impotence that involved the implantation of testicles of Toggenberg goats into men who felt like they needed a little bit of a jolt. Goat gland. There is no is polite way to put this. Yes, yes. the goat gland doctor. Uh, so, and are we? This is the 30s again. This is the 1930s. So Brinkley puts his station on the air. And uh, another gentleman named Norman Baker, who had the serum cure for cancer, puts a station on the air in Nuevo Laredo. Um, Brinkley put a second high-powered station on the air that eventually went to the Carr and Hal Collins brothers, who were in the insurance business, but they found a natural spring in Mineral Wells, Texas, that put it forth a spring water that was a miracle elixir. Allegedly, a woman who was insane had drunk the spring water and been cured of her insanity. So they called it the crazy water well. Wow. And what the Collins brothers determined was they could take the water from the well, boil it down to a, a, a powder, and then sell that powder as a cure-all. What the boil, what the powder was, was Glauber's salts, which was a horse laxative. <laughs> now, is that because that's what was in the water, or is that just what they were selling? That's what was in the water. Yeah. Now, the funny part about this is, so those stations were on the air to promote the goat gland surgery or the serum cure for cancer or the crazy water crystals, but... In addition to that, they were running a full format. They were on the air 24 hours a day. So uh, the, you had astrologers, um, you had Mexican performers, you also had country performers. So music. And, right. 
one of the first families of country were the Carters, A.B. Carter, Maybell Carter, uh, and his wife. And they showed up at Brinkley's 500,000-watt station, and they would play their hillbilly music live on the air. And Ken Burns has a documentary on PBS about the history of country music. And Johnny Cash's son said in the documentary that Johnny listened to this radio station and it started his career. So the impact of these stations on country music is something I really hadn't thought of, but it was major. Because, you know, I think at the time, and you can correct me, you know, country music you know, it was hillbilly music. I mean, that's how maybe mainstream America would have considered it. It would have been would have would not have been really the kind of thing you'd have heard on ABC or or really at the it time. It didn't sell NBC. records. At, well, not 30s. so much. It didn't sell records. I think it's more of a cultural bias, mm. right? It in is the, really it didn't more sell in the cities. <laughs> it was well, no. I think it was. It's not appropriate. You have to remember at this time, and, and again, Kevin, you can correct me. I mean, radio programming was national. Not local. So elitist. We're talking about NBC. We're talking about the Red and Blue Networks, which covered the country in in a regular programming. That's much more like thinking about how we think about network television than how we think about radio today. Is is this is this is this a a good characterization, Kevin? You are correct, Paul. You had Red and Blue and CBS and Mutual as your networks, and they provided all the evening and a lot of the daytime programming from New York or produced in Los Angeles. So the outlets for country were the local stations that had been left out um, when they divided when they divided up the American dial. Uh, the big companies won the battle instead of having cities with a bunch of five and ten and 25,000 watt radio stations, you add a few 50,000 watt radio stations, and then, you know, just these little pea shooters for pretty much the rest of the country. Yeah. And I mean, and I know from looking into the history of college radio in the early 1920s, you had a lot of stations that were on the air for very short periods of time. And, and, and very quickly, a lot of those stations disappeared, uh, and you just had these sort of larger stations. And so that means, Kevin, that uh, in in Mexico, with with these stations running five hundred thousand watts, ten times the power of an American AM station at the time, legally allowable, legally American. allowable, but basically <laughs> operated to a large extent by Americans, uh, by folks north of the border, selling patent medicines and and goat glands and and this and powder snake from oil snake oil of all sorts um they had uh, to have other programming and one one popular or at least uh, available style of programming is was country music which which did not have a large footprint across the united states of the same sort in the 1930s well i i, I think i know a little bit about border radio i read one chapter of a book last month and i know that there's a very similar uh occurrence in Southern California with rock music that 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 a border blaster really brought rock and roll to the airwaves in a way that uh, that that wasn't being uh, provided for in in the U.S. market is is that the case yes that is correct it was it is the life story of a guy named Brooklyn named Bob Smith Bob grew up in Brooklyn listening to the Mexican border blasters uh, got himself 
as far so as Shreveport, let me just Louisiana. I just want to I want to put I want to just note this you, you you're saying it sort of by the way someone in Brooklyn New York is listening to radio stations in Mexico is that correct that is correct <laughs> wow because so even that if, you, even at yeah wow because because AM is uh is you know the kids don't know about AM radio anymore <laughs> but and neither do we uh, but at one time it could really span a continent the size well, yeah, of at, North America. That's amazing. At Haverford College in the 20s, uh, they built a college radio station that they said could be heard for a thousand miles in every direction. Wow. Yeah. So I just didn't want to it, let that pass yeah. that, that you yeah. were noting there, Kevin, yeah. that, that there was somebody listening in Brooklyn, New York to Border Blasters in Mexico. And you you yourself, Kevin, you I mean you're in Arizona, a border state, and, and in our warm-up before the call, you noted uh living uh near Arizona State University in the in the Tempe, Arizona area, you, you currently cannot listen to border radio. But back in the nineteen thirties and, and around that time, in the in the first half of the twentieth century, someone in Brooklyn could. So I, I just Correct. requires a huge exclamation mark and, yeah. and highlighter, right. I think. And but, but well, let's, let's you continue back. with yeah. our story ab- about Bob Smith. Yeah, tell us more. So about Bob, Bob Smith ends up at Dr. Brinkley's station after Brinkley was gone. And you can read his autobiography for all of the details. But basically, he straightened out a major mess and was able to get the station operating and use the evening hours to debut the radio persona that he had been working on his entire adult life as Bob Smith transformed into Wolfman Jack. And Wolfman Jack is somebody who, uh, for someone of my generation, somebody of Generation X, I remember from seeing on television in like the 1970s and 80s, he was sort of thought of as a kind of an icon of, of, of rock and roll, or at least early rock and roll. Um, and, but he started out as, this, as a radio personality there on, on this Border Blaster station. And this would, right. be, in, and this he, would be in Tijuana? No, no, no. This was still over in oh. Del Rio now. What happened was he was, as Paul said, a brilliant radio businessman. He used his radio stations to sell products, including Roach Clips, Baby Chicks, and various artist albums. Uh, He noticed that the sales were down in the Midwest because American stations were running over the Mexican stations, but they were still strong in Southern California. So he gave up on everything over the Rio Grande, headed to Tijuana, took radio station XERB and turned it into a very successful black oriented hits station from studios on the Sunset Strip, serving the African-American community of Los Angeles via a transmitter in Tijuana. Wow. Can you tell us about what was available on the radio as an alternative to those border blaster stations in Southern California, was there was there enough black music playing uh, in in Los Angeles that you could you could take your pick, or was this the only way to hear rock and roll? There was one station uh, that he particularly mentioned was uh, KJLH, uh, and what he had done was he had walked into the studio uh, pretending to be a record distributor and got all of their market research about the African-American community in Los Angeles and used that to build the business plan for his station. 
and and what time period are we talking about? Is this the 1950s now, or when now when, we're now we're in the 1960s? We're into the 1960s. So these border stations were operative from uh, you know basically in without any sort of transnational agreement. It sounds like between Mexico and the United States from the 1930s into the 1960s. And I love the well, fact that no, I like no. Paul, I also want to. I want to hear the correction, but I also love that Kevin Curran, you had just taught me today, twenty minutes ago, that the reason why there was no international agreement was that the United States and Canada sat down and formed an international agreement and didn't invite Mexico to the table, and that's why we have the situation that we have at the beginning of the history of radio. In 1941, the Mexicans, the Canadians, the Americans. The Cubans and some of the Caribbean nations finally agreed to the North American Radio Broadcasting Agreement or the NARBA or NARBA. Ah. That finally set up a set of frequencies and uses for each country. Who got clear channels? Who got regional channels? Who got local channels? Uh, The Mexicans still didn't agree to the 50,000 watt limit that the Americans and the Canadians did. But that cleared up all of this fighting over interference. And the NARBA basic agreement was has been continuously updated to include FM, analog TV, and digital TV. It's why it is very rare to have an interference situation now among any of the North American countries. Wow. So then since you're starting to mention FM and this is, you know, the early days of FM here, what happens on that left side of the dial in Mexico and the United States as part of that agreement and Canada? On the on the FM side uh, that the U.S. made the decision that those lower channels are uh, reserved for educational, non-commercial use. Uh, Neither the Canadians nor the Mexicans ever set aside a part of the FM band for that specific use. So what you end up having is if you're in a border territory and you go down to the bottom of the dial, your American stations are going to be your college stations, your public stations, your religious stations, uh, but the Mexicans and the Canadians are going to be your regular commercial operations. And so that also means then that in those border areas, uh, effectively, there's less reserved space for non-commercial radio stations in the U.S. because they've negotiated rights for some space on the dial for the stations that are carrying over from across the border. Is that right? Precisely. So you have XETRA-FM in Tijuana, better known as 91X, which is a legendary alt-rock commercial station. Uh, gave a lot of artists, including Jewel, their first big break. And it operates from studios in the United States mm. off a tower uh, that overlooks Tijuana. Wow. And and so what and so then uh, this founding kind of inquiry that we had, that one of the reasons that there is no college radio station on the FM dial in the city of San Diego, um, it looks like we're probably correct that at least one reason, and I don't think it's probably on purpose, but one reason is because you have stations like 91X, which is a commercial Mexican station also in that reserve portion of the dial. Does that sound about right? 
That is correct. And it's this is the way San Diego operates. Uh, the original ABC TV affiliate for San Diego, which later became the Fox Network affiliate for San Diego until a few years ago, was XETV. So you had an ABC and then a Fox Network affiliate, which had a Mexican license. Licensed in Mexico. So we are talking to Kevin Curran, who teaches uh, communication at Arizona State University. Um, he's an expert on border radio, um, which is a topic which has fascinated us for a long time here at Radio Survivor. And Kevin heard us talk about uh, border radio with respect to college radio in the city of San Diego, California, which shares a border with Mexico in the city of Tijuana in Mexico. And he wrote in to say, hey, I'm here and I can help you understand this. So we've invited him on to talk about this. Uh, this is Radio Survivor, and we're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Reismandel. With me here is Eric Klein, and Jennifer Waits is joining us uh, from San Francisco. And a question I want to take then, so we have this kind of somewhat chaotic relationship on the on the Mexican-U.S. border, which becomes less chaotic over time, but where we still see uh, radio stations that essentially are, acting as pirates. Well, no, I don't think we I don't think we would Unlicensed say pirates. Well, border not, blasting. Well, they're they are licensed. <laughs> they are all licensed. No, what I, what I, where I'm going with this is we effectively have stations in Mexico that are are broadcasting as if they're they're American, right? They, they have studios in the United States. They're often owned or in some way or operated by people in the United States, only they have Mexican licenses. They're advertising to the American market. Yeah. They, they want the dollar. But up on our northern border, we don't hear about that so much, right? Uh, you, you, you mentioned early on in, in setting us up a station in, in Windsor, Ontario, uh, I believe it's CKLW, uh, which is well known for bringing rock music into the United States. But, I mean, this is a Canadian station, right? It's owned and operated by Canadians. It, it wasn't really an American station in the same way, was it? Actually, uh, let, me, let, me, let me start by running some major corrections to that. Uh, CKLW was first put on the air in 1932 by local business interests on the south side of the Detroit River. Oh, really? It did eventually come under the ownership of what eventually became known as RK, RKO General Broadcasters. It was American-owned uh, with offices in the United States and studios and transmitters on the Canadian side. It grew from an AM station to an AM-FM TV operation. It was Channel 9 on the, uh, on the VHF TV and 93.9 FM plus AM 800. In 1949, uh, they got a 50,000-watt upgrade. So their daytime signal covers southern Michigan, northern Indiana, northern Ohio, even northwestern Pennsylvania. So in 1967, they flipped the switch to the Big 8, this Drake Chenault boss radio format that had proven so big in Los Angeles at KHJ, and the station took off like a rocket. Not only did it become the number one station in Detroit, it became a top-rated station in Cleveland and Toledo, and delivered consistent ratings in places like Erie, Fort Wayne, Lansing, and Ann Arbor. 
And the American radio people didn't quite know what to make of this, especially when the national numbers started getting adding up. And this station in Windsor, Ontario, was the third most listened to radio station in the United States. Kevin Curran, you're talking about a radio station in Canada that brought a new kind of rock and roll sound to the airwaves in, in northern United States. We also You also taught us about a radio station down in Mexico that brought the same brought a similar sound of rock and roll to Southern California. When I first learned about border blasting radio, we had guests on Radio Survivor earlier in the year that taught us the history of Irish pirate radio. And these border blasters in Ireland were were seeking audiences in the UK market and bringing a sound to the airwaves that was not available because the BBC wasn't playing rock music. And so these entrepreneurs uh, broke a few eggs to make an omelet and and built rock and roll radio for UK audiences. Is there a similarity to how the United States border blasters were perceived? Were they were they innovating rock and roll radio for this market? In the case of XERB in uh, Tijuana, Los Angeles, and CKLW in Windsor, Detroit, you are correct. Uh, there was also an attempt. In uh, El Paso Juarez, a station that became known as XEROK, a 150,000 watt station at 800, the same frequency as CKLW, uh, attempted to become a big deal uh, top 40 station, but they had a number of challenges, way too many changes in personnel, and a really bad geography Mm -hmm. because. You know, I just mentioned all of those big cities that CKLW provided great coverage to all day long. Um, If you're in El Paso, you are literally in the middle of nowhere. Uh, The nearest big markets that that station could have served were Tucson and Albuquerque. So there was no way X-Rock, as it became known, was ever going to become comparable. But they did make an attempt. Now... The other thing that you mentioned, and you kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier, you used the word pirate. And that applied to those stations in Britain. And later on in the conversation, we can talk about how it was applied to some American stations in uh, Northwest Washington. But in this case, As one way of getting back at the border blasters in the 30s, uh, the FCC passed a section of Section 325 that required a permit be obtained from the commission for anybody who wanted to operate in the United States and send programming to a radio station outside the United States that was directed back into the U.S. And they thought it would cut down the border blasters because instead of operating from U.S. cities, they'd have to go across the river to Mexico and work there. When was that rule passed? When did that happen? 1933, 1934, right as the FRC was becoming the FCC. So it's a time when the uh, Federal Radio Commission uh, was becoming what we now have as the Federal Communications Commission. Okay. Correct. Uh, Norman Baker challenged it and won on appeal that the rule did not apply to pre-recorded programming. Hmm. So what Wolfman Jack was doing in Los Angeles was his jocks were recording their shows as though they were live <laughs> throughout the day. 
At the end of the day, they took the box of tapes, put them on the midnight Greyhound bus to San Diego. Somebody in San Diego got the box of tapes, drove it across the border to the transmitter site, and then they played those tapes out the next day. Oh, I wish those tapes were still around. I bet somebody has some of them somewhere. <laughs> That's a somewhere, unique preservation opportunity. Somebody has these tapes. Um, talking about border but radio all of the here. Stations that, all of the stations that operate today with studios in the United States and transmitters in Mexico do have 325 permits. Kevin Curran, I'm wondering if there is a way for you to answer my question, it, it might be an unfair question, but were these border blasters, especially the Mexican border blasters, did they invent a kind of rock and roll radio that did not exist in the United States? Is that why they were popular? I don't know if it did not exist or what they did was they brought it to the next level. Wolfman said, I will never play a record that's not sold in a black record store. Mm -hmm. But he had, he played Glenn Campbell on XERB because he tracked their sales in um up in windsor uh the legendary music director of cklw was a woman named rosalie trombley and she had both a list of record stores that she called every week to find out what was selling there plus she had the request lines that were being tallied hmm. plus she was listening to the urban stations in detroit and she was trying to figure out you know what was hot and what was not. And at one point, uh, President Carter held a salute to black music at the White House. Rosalie was a guest at that event. I'm just, I'm wondering if there's any way for us to know why those individuals couldn't succeed in the United States then if they were so, uh, if, they, if they were so smart, what, what caused them to have to cross the border in order to succeed? In Detroit, it was probably just, uh, you know, a lack of stations. RKO General ended up with CKLW, AM, FM, and TV, and they said, we want to be number one in Detroit. And, you know, they just didn't have an, an American side. Because remember, you only were allowed to own one AM, one FM, and depending upon when you got the license, one TV per market. You didn't have a situation where you have now where, you can own eight radio stations in the largest markets. To some extent, you're saying it's a little bit of you can have a great idea, but actually obtaining the station, obtaining the license might have been way more complex in a certain regard back in the 1960s than, than it is today. Although getting a station today is fairly complex, at least a commercial station. But if you are a, a iHeartRadio or Entercom, you have no lack for stations to try out idea if you're going to be experimental, although it's not something we typically see any longer. You mentioned a company that actually played a rather interesting role in cross-border target radio, and that is uh, what we now call iHeartMedia today, uh, used to be called Clear Channel Communications. And Clear Channel um, racked up the maximum number of stations in San Diego with eight, and they also had... Uh, management contracts for five Mexican stations, including 91X that we talked about earlier. And so they effectively controlled the programming on 13 stations in San Diego. Uh, one of their, several of their competitors complained to the FCC that this was really not in keeping with the Telecommunications Act of 1996. Uh, there was a hearing 
at which um, the Clear Channel CEO was asked by Senator McCain, uh, how do you justify this misbehavior? Uh, Clear Channel said, hey, we're just giving the market what it wants. But in the end, the FCC redefined the markets and actually said, we are going to count the Mexican and Canadian signals that come in um, and you can only own eight of any of them. Hmm. That's a rare move on, on the part of the FCC. The voice you just heard is Kevin Curran, who teaches communication at the Arizona State University. He wrote his dissertation about border radio, and that's a topic for today here on Radio Survivor. You can learn much more about many of the topics we've talked about today. I've been taking notes furiously, so we're going to give you links to all this amazing history at our website. Go to radiosurvivor.com slash podcast to find our show notes. So, Kevin, we've been talking, you've been talking a lot about some of these larger stations that are targeting residents across the border. I'm curious about the smaller folks. So, do you know of examples of college or community radio stations that, or other non commercial style stations that are targeting listeners across the border? There is a public radio station in El Paso which does not provide any service to Mexican listeners and may have two Mexican listeners in its list of supporters. Uh, however, there is a Mexican public station in Juarez that does claim to want to present Mexican music to both sides. Hmm. Why, do you, why do you think that is that, that the non-commercial broadcasters are less likely to be broadcasting over the border? It's probably more a matter of, you know, where do you get your support from? Uh, there was an attempt to put a nonprofit cross-border classical station into San Diego, Tijuana, and it did not work. Uh, if you're an NPR affiliate uh, owned by a state university, it would be really hard to justify putting resources into attracting people from another country who speak another language. That would be my guess. I know in your dissertation, you also talked about religious broadcasting, which is often, you know, it's often non-commercial in the United States and on that non-commercial side of the dial. So I was interested that you pointed out in your work that in Canada, they don't license religious broadcasters. So how is that how has that affected the radio landscape on the border of the U.S. and Canada for religious broadcasters? Canada did not license single-faith religious radio stations until 1993. They felt that it was kind of against their idea of multiculturalism and pluralism. Uh, there were two exceptions for an Adventist station and a Wesleyan station that were put on the air in Newfoundland back in the 1920s. And when Newfoundland became part of Canada, those stations were allowed to continue to operate in their single faith world. Today, uh, there are still not a lot of single faith radio stations in Canada, and there are none in the Vancouver market. So what you have in Bellingham, Washington, which is the northwest corner of Washington, and Blaine, which is the last city before you uh, cross into uh, British Columbia, 
you have a commercial AM religious station and a commercial FM contemporary Christian music station, both of which derive most of their listenership and most of their revenues from the Canadian side of the market. Yeah, it's really interesting to see that dynamic that that we're seeing the dynamic of rock and roll listeners and country music listeners traveling borders and then listeners, you know, catching their contemporary Christian station across the border. The other thing that makes that market unique is if you look at CKLW, its primary purpose was to get advertisers from the United States, as was XERB, as was XROCK in El Paso. Up there in um, Blaine and Bellingham, it's the other way around. The American stations are used to be attract to attract Canadian listeners. Now, I just mentioned the religious operators. Uh, Vancouver is a city of immigrants, a very large population of East Asian immigrants, especially from China, and South Asian immigrants, especially from India. The Canadian radio television and telecommunications commission or the CRTC has some pretty high bars to set when it comes to licensing radio stations. And they look at things that the FCC would never touch, including formats and economic viability. Mm. As the South Asian population grew, you had two entrepreneurs who wanted to tap into that market via broadcasting. One of them they both started with the subcarrier FM stations, which if you know somebody who is blind and has a radio to listen to the reading service, that's what most subcarriers in the United States do. They eventually got themselves on to broadcast stations. One of them started by buying 24 hours a day, seven days a week on a radio station in Blaine which had its transmitter plant right on the water, looking straight across at White Rock, British Columbia. And he programmed it to serve the South Asian audience in Vancouver from studios in Surrey, British Columbia. Another South Asian entrepreneur did the same thing with a second station in Ferndale, Washington. And a third one came along in another part of Washington state to put a station on the air that would serve the South Asian listeners in Victoria, British Columbia. The CRTC was not happy. Other stations in the market considered them pirate operations, even though the CRTC never used that term because they were not playing by the rules. And one of the South Asian entrepreneurs, the original ones who did get her AM station on the air was vociferous with the regulators saying, you have to do something. They're taking the revenue out of the market that should belong to those of us who are legally licensed here. Hmm. So in effect, you had what are licensed stations in the United States that the Canadian authorities looked at as pirate. And I think in, in a lot of ways, it, it, it seems like... Because it, they crossed the border without permission. Without permission. And it seems like, well, the stations themselves had permission to cross the border. 
because I right. mean, we, we did they, but the programming, which was specifically Canadian and for a Canadian audience, did not have the permission of the Canadian authorities to cross the border. Is, is that, right. am I if getting you, that, that split correct? That is correct. If you put a radio station on the air or make a technical change to a radio station on the air within 200 miles of the Canadian or Mexican border, you not only have to file with the FCC, you have to make a filing with the Canadian or Mexican authorities to have them approve the fact that your station will not interfere with a station on their side of the border before the FCC will grant you that technical change. There was one multicultural station in Vancouver that broadcasts some hours of South Asian uh, programming. Uh, so the CRTC, programming. right, or, talk and music. Okay. Uh, the CRTC eventually licensed stations to serve the Chinese immigrant community, but the South Asians were still being left out. Eventually, they granted a license to one FM and one AM station that would serve the South Asian community. And then they they issued cease and desist orders to the, the groups that were operating on the American signals, but it really didn't matter. Because I, I might be in a dangerous... Uh, dangerous turf, but I'm drawing connections to stories we've learned about pirate radio in uh, in Manhattan, for instance, where we have uh, immigrant communities that are lacking community radio of their own, so they take to the airwaves uh, well, with pirates. And so here we have in, in Canada, Vancouver, B.C., uh, a different situation with a sort of similar. Well, I outcome. think I think the similarity there's a similarity there, but I think that uh, you know part of the the, the, the difference here is that. Canada and the U.S. are different, very different in the way they regulate their airways. And as as Kevin mentioned, uh, the Canadian authorities are much more strict about who gets licenses, and they want to know more about the programming that will go on the air, and 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 who you will serve, and and your economic model than in the U.S., where basically the FCC is is agnostic to the type of programming; they just care whether it's commercial or non-commercial uh, as to where it goes in the dial. But I think a good parallel is really to uh, the circumstance that we that you mentioned before, Eric, in Ireland, mm -hmm. or uh, circumstance uh, which we go back to the 1960s. Uh, in which there was Radio Luxembourg, which used to broadcast English language programming, uh, rock and roll programming, basically intended for a UK audience, licensed in Luxembourg, uh, and put which eventually put enough pressure on the on the BBC along with uh, the pirates there in the UK to start actually airing uh, commercial radio program. I'm uh, not commercial uh, to start airing rock and roll programming, and later on you had enough pressure on the uh, UK authorities to start allowing private commercial stations as well and not to have a BBC monopoly, right? And I think here, what, what the story that Kevin is giving us is a situation in which these stations in Blaine, Washington, programming to a South Asian community in Vancouver, pressured the CRTC in Canada, the Canadian Radio Authority, eventually to allow licenses to serve that population in Vancouver. Would you say that's correct, Kevin? You are, you are correct. And what I found uh, fascinating uh, as a corollary to that is how these operators were taking advantage of some interesting geographic quirks. Uh, there is a spit of land uh, in uh, Washington called Point Roberts, 
and it's a little peninsula that is totally disconnected from everything in the United States. Um, and the story of how it ended up that, that way is lost to antiquity. But basically, uh, the one that's most believable is the survey crew came through, identified where the 49th parallel is, asked for guidance as to what to do with this piece of land and didn't hear anything back. So they just said, okay, the Americans can keep it. There was a fully granted permission from the Americans and the Canadians to allow a station from Ferndale, Washington to move to Point Roberts and put a 50,000 watt transmitter site 315 yards south of the Canadian border. Kevin, with the with the low power FM licensing windows that have happened in recent years, I've heard anecdotally that that folks have had challenges getting low power FM stations set up in places like San Diego because of the proximity to Mexico and also because of some of the um, regulatory things that you were mentioning where if you make a change, you have to get all sorts of permissions for it. So I'm just wondering if you could speak to that a little bit about why why might it be more difficult to set up a low power FM near the border? If you are Mexico or Canada or even the United States, you really treasure the channels that you've got. And it would not surprise me if the Mexican IFT, which is their regulatory agency, uh, looked at these applications and said, if we were to sign off on this station going on the air, would it limit our ability to put a station on the air in that market? Uh, one of the things we saw in Canada in the over the last quite a few years now is the migration of AM stations to FM. Uh, we're seeing that to a certain extent in Mexico now, too. Uh, well, I mentioned X-Rock a minute ago. Uh, there was an application made to turn, to turn it off and move to FM, but it was not approved. So if are you really going to say to the Americans, yes, you, you can have this channel for your 100-watt community radio station when you might be able to make it available for a 50,000-watt FM station on your side of the border? Right. That makes a lot of sense. Another uh, thing I, I, I kind of want to point out that might also complicate the situation is one of the reasons why the latest wave of low-power FM stations are happening in large cities like Los Angeles or San Francisco or Seattle is because they are were permitted specifically to be sited closer on the dial to full-power stations. And that's a specifically American exception. Right. That is a specifically FCC rule. And I don't know, Kevin, if you know to what extent the Canadians or the Mexicans would permit that sort of spacing. So. So, for instance, per, permit a low power FM station in Blaine, Washington, to be sited on the dial a little closer to a full power station in Vancouver, Victoria. I do not know the answer. to yeah, that. Yeah, but it seems to me that that would be an additional complication because of yeah. the very American nature of low power FM. So on Radio Survivor today, we've been speaking with our guest, Kevin Curran, who teaches at Arizona State University about border blaster radios in North America with Mexico and Canada and the United States all sharing borders and sharing a radio culture. And we learned that uh, in the 1920s, there were stations that were that could 
it was it's it's making me uh, I almost wish I hadn't mentioned this. It's making me think about how like with Greek mythology we start off with the Titans that are just uh, gigantic beings that that walk astride the earth and these stations in the 1920s 100 years ago sort of were the Titans of Border Blaster Radio. They could really you know, we learned that Wolfman Jack could hear a, a border blaster radio station from Mexico from his home in in Brooklyn, Brooklyn New, New York. York. Yeah. So and as we go through the history of border blasters in the 1960s, Wolfman Jack founds a station that then, could, you know, had a uh, reach throughout North America. But things have necessarily shrunk down. The world of border blasters is smaller now. I'm wondering what what is the size of border blaster radio in 2019 these days are there big stations having a big influence anywhere in north america well you have um the the situation with those niche stations uh up in blaine bellingham serving vancouver uh you have a situation in windsor ontario where most of the listenership is still to stations from detroit even though the crtc has assembled a really nice diverse set of stations to listen to in Windsor and the Windsor radio general managers cannot figure out why they can't, you know, why, as Charlie Brown would say, how do we keep losing if we're so sincere? So you mean, um, one uh, so general- basically the Canadian stations are not what the Canadians are listening to. They're listening to Detroit and Michigan stations. Right. One general manager said to me, how many beer mugs do I have to give away? <laughs> um, in uh, in El Paso, Juarez, you have, you know, X stations that regularly appear in the uh, El Paso book. And when you say uh, the you word have, X, you're not saying uh, former stations. You're saying that their call letters start with the letter X. Correct. So you have the Mexican stations that um, there's like MVS, the Mexican operator, has a cross-border permit. He's got a studio and offices on the El Paso side, studio and offices on the Juarez side um, for EXA. Uh, you have um, a group that includes both Mexican and American stations. The Mexican company owns the maximum 20% of the American stations. So they operate really jointly. And over in San Diego, um, you've had this history of stations like 91X. Um, what was Wolfman Station became XEPRS, which became a sports station, the Mighty 1090, which for 12 years was the flagship station of the San Diego Padres in English, you know, America's pastime on a Mexican station. And the current controversy in cross-border targeted radio actually does involve an LPFM station and an AM border blaster. And this is KQEV, um, a LPFM licensed to Walnut, California, and aimed at the local Chinese-American community up there. Now, down in Tijuana at 690, you have a station that used to be called Extra, X-E-T-R-A, and it was one of the first all-news radio stations. It was called Extra over Los Angeles. Uh, when Gordon McClendon, the legendary Texas broadcaster, had the management contract for it, then it became a gold, an oldie station. Then it became a sports station, uh, Extra Sports 690. Uh, then it went 
into Spanish programming for the first time in decades. And then uh, it was recently purchased by an American up in New York uh, because the Mexican rules have changed. Uh, foreigners can now own up to 50% of a Mexican license and more under certain conditions. So she buys XEWW and she gets permission from the Mexican government to operate it in Mandarin to serve the Chinese immigrant community in Los Angeles. So you have a Mexican station, uh, XEWW, serving the Mandarin-speaking population in Los Angeles. Now, what's the connection to the LPFM station, KQEV? KQEV filed to deny XEWW's 325 permit um, on grounds that it was economic competition, which will not get the attention of the FCC, because as we said, the FCC has no interest in the economic viability of a radio station. And on grounds that caught the attention of Senators Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, that the station, which is being operated from the facilities of the Phoenix Satellite Television Service, is actually somehow a front for Chinese Communist Party propaganda coming into Los Angeles. Wow. Wow. A lot of layers there. (laughs) (laughs) The file of documents in and out of the FCC is at this point at least a thousand pages long. Another episode of Radio Survivor, then. <laughs> that, that is definitely an in-the-weeds sort of circumstance. But as you note, Kevin, the likelihood of the FCC acting to deny this permit for uh, the Mexican station to be broadcasting uh, American content that's in Mandarin, um, it's, it's, it's very unlikely that the FCC will choose to act on it because it's generally something the commission does not see within its purview. Well, uh, I would not hesitate. I would not hesitate to guess as to what the commission will say yeah. because it's been there's just too much paperwork involved. There are too many parties involved and they have been sitting on this case now for quite some time. Border Radio, it's fascinating uh and I'm sure there are many more stories and uh Wonderful anecdotes and tales and stations we haven't even begun to touch on here on today's conversation with Kevin Curran, who teaches at Arizona State University. He wrote his dissertation on border radio. Uh, we sure hope that's going to turn into a, a book, Kevin. I know if, if we can help you, if we can help, if there's some publisher listening, we hope maybe they'll give you a call to help uh, get this sto- these stories in the hands of more people. Thank you, gentlemen and lady. Thank you so <laughs> Thank much, you. Kevin. My thanks again to this week's guest, Dr. Kevin Curran of Arizona State University. If you missed any part of today's episode, you can hear the whole thing. We're a podcast. Check it out at radiosurvivor.com or subscribe wherever you get your programs. We also love to hear from our listeners. You can email us. Our email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com. You can find us on the social media as well. Show notes today for everything that you may or may not have learned about on the episode are up at radiosurvivor.com. My name is Eric Klein. On behalf of Jennifer Waits and Paul Reese Mandel, thank you so much for listening. Today's episode of Radio Survivor was a rebroadcast that originally aired on September 24th, 2019.